Thank you, Alex, band. Particularly that last song, one of my favorites, an older one, but one that I enjoy so much because it, um, it is the ambiance of heaven. If we understand Revelation, Book of Revelation at all, we know that in the background there will always be holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. So it's good to be with you today. If you're a guest, we uh, encourage you before you go to scan that QR code in front. Let us know that you were here. If you have little ones that uh, you'd like to have in Sunday school at this time, they can be dismissed to the foyer. For the rest of you, if you would, turn as is our habit to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been working our way through these two letters. We're about at the end now, and so as we uh, come to this time, let us, um, we're ready, aren't we, to seek the Lord and understand His Word and be, and be encouraged by it. We're picking up today, partway through our last section of this amazing letter of 2 Corinthians, the title, Marks of Ministry. We started this last section back in November by looking at the apostleship of Paul and the accompanying first century signs that are exclusive of that time period. We looked at all of those kinds of things, and we moved on into Paul's example as a minister. And those marks of ministry are an example for ministers to follow throughout the ages, and so we've been tracking that as we've worked our way through uh, this last two chapters. I'd like to read together, if you would. It's been a while since we've read uh, all the way through to the end, so I'd like to do that as the Lord works through his word. It's powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing the soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we need to read it, and we turn it loose, and it does its work. So I'd like you to look there, if you would, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 19, and we'll read all the way through the end. It starts like this. All this time, you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you, actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all this for your upbuilding, beloved. Verse 24, I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish and that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Verse 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Now look at chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 2, I have previously said when present the second time and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all of the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Verse 3, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who's not weak toward you, but mighty in you. Verse 4, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Verse 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Verse 6, but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Verse 7, now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. Verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Verse 9, for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This also we pray for that you be made complete. Verse 10, for this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. 
Verse 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 13. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Marvelous end to the letter. You can kind of hear Paul's voice and imagine it being read in the church as they hear the last few things he wants to say before he comes to visit them. And as we read that for the first time several months ago, picking up in verse 11, we noticed that if you were to summarize Paul's heart in in the passage, in just one word, you certainly could say affection. Even in the difficult things he had to say and even in the clear instruction he gave and the understanding of what would happen when he came, you can tell that he loves them. And if you summarize the intent of the passage, in fact, the intent of Paul's ministry in general, it's really found, I think, in verse 19. Verse 19, it is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your, what's the last part? upbuilding beloved. The intent for Paul of his, all of his ministry, of his writing, his visiting, was to be a builder. Edgar Guest wrote something I think that's important. I, I enjoyed reading it. I'll share it with you. He wrote, as I watched them tear a building down, a gang of men in a busy town, with a ho-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and the side wall fell. I asked the foreman, are these men skilled and the men you'd hire if you wanted to build? He just gave a laugh and said, no, indeed, just common labor is all I need. I can easily wreck in a day or two what builders have taken years to do. And I thought to myself, as I went my way, which of these roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder who works with care, measuring life by rule and square? Am I shaping my work to a well-made plan, patiently doing the best I can? Or am I a wrecker who walks to town content with the labor of tearing down? He, he ends with this, O oh Lord, that my life and my labors be that which would build for eternity. I think we can understand that, can't we? And just because we want to build for eternity, I think with the Apostle Paul's example, doesn't mean that everything we have to say is easy on the ears. Right? I mean, you can build and have to give direct instruction. You can build and have to admonish. You can build and be clear, and I think Paul gives us that example of that type of building, and so that becomes the example for us, doesn't it? Paul gave us, as we just kind of summarize what we've looked at since verse 11, he gave us the example of persevering, he gave us the example of selflessness, he gave us the example of devotion to the church, like a parent looking after a child, joyfully pouring himself out. We saw Paul gave us the example of humble faithfulness no matter what. Paul gave us the example of truthfulness and forthrightness and sincerity, and you could sum that all up, even with the people he sent uh, besides himself, just summing up the integrity of their life. And where we finished last time was in verse 19, no matter he said what I said or I wrote, you just thought I was defending myself to you. Not true, he says, actually, he said, it's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. And that's where we had our next mark, our next example of faithful teacher. It's a single focus to bring people to maturity, to build up the church. We saw that in Ephesians as well, didn't we? When we looked back at Ephesians, God gave to the church pastors and teachers for the building up of the believers. 
And so we understand that's the case. Paul gives a good example of that. And that can just be so hard at times. It's hard to stay on target like that when people are accusing you of things and circulating little letters as they did about Paul with all his lists of shortcomings. And we know that was the deal and and people go through that often in the ministry. But Paul sticks with it and he stays with the main thing, always desiring to bring the church to maturity. It's in the sight of God, he says, we've been speaking in Christ. In other words, God is the judge of our actions, not you, and the speaking of Christ is to indicate the obvious that true believers are not in sin, true believers are not in the flesh. They can understand that because of faith, the true believer's life is hidden in Christ. And Paul uses that term, and so the question is, what does that mean, and how could we know that that's true? Paul says, before God, I've been speaking in Christ And I want to pause here just for a minute because there are sometimes as you exegetically study a passage that you want to make sure that some phrases and comments are clear. And so we want to make sure that that one is particularly because it's such an important reality for every believer, not just the Apostle Paul. It's not just some special place that applies only to a few select people because in just a few verses, as we saw just a second ago, he's going to question the church, specifically those who've been opposing him and those who've led this opposition, and the false apostles, and those who remain in sin, he said, and have not repented of those this, the things that they've done. And so he's going to ask them a question in verse 5 of chapter 13, and he's going to say, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, he said. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? And that's the other side of that, as you are in Christ, Christ dwells in you through his risen spirit, Right? And so that is all part of what it means to be a believer, unless indeed, he said, you fail the test. In other words, there has to be something objective that they can use if they're going to test themselves, if they're going to see and examine themselves. And we're going to look at that more thoroughly when we get to that passage. But Paul says, I've been speaking to you in Christ. And we see in Christ that reality explained for us very clearly in Romans 6, 3. And I want you to look there. And we won't get a whole lot farther in our passage under our consideration right now today, but I think that we'll get a lot farther in our understanding of how important this thing that Paul said, being in Christ, is in the reality of the believer and in the test, certainly that he asks all people to do, and certainly himself as well. Paul's explaining to the believer the position they have, and in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Mark the wording here, and you'll see a lot of very important things, and we'll just read through the first couple verses and then come back and begin to comment on it. Verse 3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have, verse 4, been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You're in Christ Jesus in his death, buried with him through baptism into death, raised in newness of life for we have become united with him in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection just pause right there and i want to start just kind of pulling out some remarkable statements that are very true about every believer and we're going to answer that question pretty clearly um how would we know and what what is it that we would use as a verification that someone's in christ because paul says before god i'm in christ and so i want to start right there number one we are The scripture says, immersed in Christ, united with Christ. And if we're in Christ, then we'll be in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. And that's symbolized outwardly, of course, by baptism, by immersion, but he's not talking about water baptism here. That has to be in the background. Obviously, they wouldn't understand what he was talking about if 
Baptism wasn't in their mind. And, that, and we even say that when we baptize people uh, as they go into the water, buried, what, in the likeness of death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. So there's that beautiful picture of baptism by immersion that explains this whole idea. But he's talking about really the reality of a living, intimate union with Jesus Christ by nature of saving faith. That's really the, the focus of the section right here. And that answers our question. What is it? Who's in Christ? Well, every single believer who is saved by faith. But that's just so vast, isn't it? When you think about being in Christ, there's just so much we could talk about, and there's so many, many scriptures that have to do with that. But Paul's going to explain the indications of being in Christ in the next few verses, and that will be clear then for us as we move into the section where he questions the church and asks about those who haven't repented, and we'll get an idea perhaps of what's going on here. But we really are in union with him. If we think about being in Christ, we're in union with him in, in, in every sense. For example, and we're just going to barely brush the surface here. There's a sense that we identify with him in his virgin birth, do we not? Because he was born of the Spirit and we are born of the Spirit. There's, there's, a, there's an idea that we are identifying with him, we're union with him in his baptism because we too have been baptized by the Spirit of God at salvation. We can identify with his suffering because we bear in our own body the marks of Christ, greater or lesser extent, depending on your testimony. We know the fellowship of the sufferings as a result of testimony, and around the world people uh, exhibit that constantly, don't they? Uh, we are united with him in his life because we now have spiritual life. We are united with him in his eternal, glorious likeness. Uh, we're made in his image, and we're conformed to that image more and more until someday we'll be just like him because Scripture says we will see him as he is. We're united with him in his inheritance. We're united with him in his kingdom and in his rule and in his sonship and his gifts for the church. You know, and husbands, in a very real sense, are united with Christ in his love and care for the church as we express that to our wives. So there's this incredible emphasis in the word of God of our union with Christ. And we could just study that for a while and not exhaust it. If we just wanted to talk about being in Christ in that union. But I think it sums it, he sums it up pretty well, and in, in, uh, we see it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to identify himself with us. Why? Because we are one with him. How marvelous is that? So look back at verse 4 now. Let's start to break this down because I think the indications of being in Christ are clear here. The reality for every born-again believer is that you're in Christ. But what's that going to look like? So verse 4 says this. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And then he clarifies being in Christ. So he says in verse 5, For if we have become, here it is, united, grown together, fused together with him, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Pause right there. And the second really marvelous statement that Paul unfolds for us here is, that the, is this. We are connected to Jesus' death and his resurrection. That union connects us to both. And so that general overview as he gets more specific here is very important. We die in Christ in order to live in Christ. We share in his death in order to partake of his life. It happened in that manner, the likeness of his death and resurrection. We're justified to be sanctified. And they are inseparable realities. And there is a new I, not the old I. These are the redemptive facts, if you will. And these are important. Otherwise, Scripture wouldn't deal with it. We're, we're grasping the realities of redemption as Paul sets them out for us. 
We've died to sin, buried in his death, risen to walk in newness of life. It's a wonderful truth. Now look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So you're no longer a slave to that master. That's the idea. So here's the third thing Paul points out. You are not two natures. Hassling back and forth inside some dual nature competing with one another. If you teach that, then the problem is you can excuse all kinds of bad behavior by saying, well, it was my old nature. I mean, it's my old nature. It sticks its head out from time to time. What can I do? Paul says, knowing this is very basic to our understanding of our redemption. Perhaps they knew it more then than we know it now. Very basic stuff. But he says, what are we supposed to know? Well, verse 6, knowing this, that, here's number 4, our old self was crucified with him. It isn't just wounded, it's dead. The question is, what's the old self? That's a good question. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21 explains that for us. Indeed, you have heard him, that's Jesus, and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, verse 22, that you put off in reference to your former manner of life, the old self. What's the old self? Well, it just said, your former manner of life. What kind was it? I'll keep reading. Which is, what? Corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What's the old man then? Your old corrupt self, your unregenerate self, and it's contrasted with verse 24, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, what are you? Old man, new man, fighting one another? Well, you won't find that in the Bible. You, are you old nature, new nature, harassing and irritating each other? No. Scripture says you have put off, this is in the aorist tense here, so it's very important, the old self, and you have put on, again, aorist, the new self. The old self was corrupt with deceitful lusts. The new self was created in righteousness and true holiness. And that's a statement of fact. You know this, he said. Now, that is the old self. Now, look at Colossians chapter nine, 3, verse 9. Now, this is a parallel book to the book of Ephesians, and it basically goes over many of the same things. Look how it's said here to the, to the church at Colossae. Verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another, since you, mark this, have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Don't lie to each other. Why? Because you're not that person. Verse 10, And have put on the new self. Again, this is a statement of fact. Identity for the Christian, since you have repented and believed. Now you are someone new. Don't, you know, don't mimic the old life. That's the idea. In your new life. So do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who's being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. So that's the old self. Now, back to Romans 6.6. Let's see if we're consistent then in our understanding of what Paul is talking about. We've already put off the old man. How do we know? Verse 6. Knowing this, common knowledge that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And that old, paleos, the worn by use, worse for wear, unfit, that kind of thing, it's where we get our word paleontology from in the English. But the idea is that the man fit for the scrap heap, the person we were before salvation, doomed and damned and depraved and unregenerate, the in-Adam man, the useless man. Paul said to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, for as in Adam, that's the old self, what's the rest of it? All die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. In Christ, alive. In Adam, dead. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who, again, our word, 
in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Look at the rest of verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was, what's it say? Crucified with You were charged with Adam's sin. And we've talked about that before. You weren't there with Adam. You didn't sin in the garden like he sinned. But you were charged with his sin through headship. And you prove that you're Adam's race every time you do something rebellious. We understand that, don't we? You're charged with Adam's sin. And at salvation, here's the other side, you were credited with Christ's death. So you, didn't, you weren't back there sitting with Adam, and you also weren't on the cross with Christ. You were credited with both. By faith, you're credited with Christ's death. So the concept really, as we understand it, is really germane to all of Scripture's teaching of redemption. With salvation comes a cleaving away of the old man. And to suppose that the old self, having been crucified, still lives on, or that having been buried is rose from the grave with us, is to contradict the whole point of what Paul is saying and what he said to uh, two other churches in very similar language. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that as you are a new creation, you're still wrapped in corrupt flesh. That's not a secret to anyone, is it? Uh, you're not yet perfect. There's still a part of you, this body, and its desires that still has sin's hook in it. You're a new you wrapped in a corrupt body. The old self, the old man, the old nature, if you will, cease to exist. Salvation, beloved, caused a radical change in the nature of the person. And it's the only way someone can be in Christ. It's the only way that the spirit of the risen Christ can dwell in you. And it's like a missionary once asked to give some proof that salvation triumphs. This is how he replied. He said, when I arrived at my mission station in the Fiji Islands, this is what I had to do first. Bury the hands, arms, feet, and heads of 80 victims whose bodies had been roasted and eaten at a cannibal feast. I lived, he said, to see those very cannibals who had taken part in that inhuman feast gathered about the Lord's table. Such, he says, a miracle could be performed only by Jesus. When true repentance came, belief came through Jesus, and those that used to eat each other henceforth loved one another. That's the radical change of the death of the old man and the birth of the new. And then the flesh, which was trained to be in perfect harmony with the old man and had no need to do anything else and no desire, now closed the new man, and hence there is the battle. Salvation, though, beloved, causes a radical change so how does this verse apply to someone claiming to be in Christ? Mark this. This is it. If someone comes along and they're living in the same old relationship to sin under the same tyranny of sin with the same old lifestyle and no fruit of the Spirit, no matter what they claim, the fact is there hasn't been a radical, demonstrable change in the reality of who they are, then, beloved, they have not been redeemed and this is a serious problem in the church it's always been a problem it was a problem right from the start with paul which is the reason why he's going to go through hey you, you're many of you have committed all these sins you haven't repented of any of them are you in christ and what's the obvious answer no it's a continued pattern of unbelief a continued pattern of rebellion as it's compared to the rest of the world living just like the world when sin happens no no abhorring your your flesh no desiring to do better no wanting to be pleasing to Christ listen if that's the case no matter what the historic events may be in the past of your life there's no salvation 
Coming forward saves no one. In fact, it can be a detriment because you may come forward for some reason or another, but if you don't come forward to confess and repent and cast yourself on Jesus and trust in his salvation, his death and his resurrection, then no matter what happened up here, what matters is what's going on now. Is the pattern changed or is it just the same? Because we can say a lot of things and we learn the correct language over time, but that doesn't indicate a heart's been changed. And that's the important part here. It's a very substantial application of being in Christ. And Paul wants them to know, obviously you know that we passed the test and everything that I've said before the Lord is in Christ because I am. Now, in order to be in Christ, the old self was crucified. What else is common knowledge? Back at verse 6. Knowing that's the number 5. Our body of sin is rendered powerless. So we know, this is common knowledge, that our body of sin is rendered powerless so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. What's it mean? Uh, and the question comes up, you mean when I became a Christian, the body of sin was destroyed? And then you may think, well, I don't think I'm a Christian because it doesn't seem like the body of sin was destroyed. I think it's important to understand what's gone on here. The reality of your uh, relationship with Christ, if you've come to him for sal- in salvation, is that you are a new person practicality is is that you still have a sinful body that you're living in which has all its desires and that's where sanctification goes to work see and so i didn't you know many of you will say and i say this too i i I didn't even know what sin was until it was saved now it just seems like that's all i see well that's a good thing and that's an indication that you know christ as your savior and that you're in christ because now you do see it and you you abhor it and you hate doing it and you're looking forward to a time where you'll have a glorified body and that will no longer be the case So what's he saying? He's saying that I'm supposed to be perfect? Well, definitely not. Paul teaches us that sin is associated with the body. I mean, that's obvious. I think we understand that. And following his argument all the way through chapter 8, in chapter 8, verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin. See, Christ is in you, but what's the problem? The body's dead because of sin. Verse 11, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Is he going to give life to the old you? No, it died, and the new you rose with Christ. Verse 13, if, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh in the body, you'll live. See, that's the understanding. If you're living according to the flesh, the pattern of your life is like it's always been, then there's been no change, and you're perfect in your perfect harmony with what your body wants to do, then you, you aren't in Christ, and you have to die. But if the pattern of your life By the Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body, see, not the deeds of the old man, not the deeds of Adam, see, the deeds of the body, that's the problem, where where that desire still rests, you'll live. Verse 23, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, mark it, the redemption of our, what's the last part? Bodies. In other words, We face the fact that as long as we're in this body, we have a problem with sin, don't we? The new man is locked up in unredeemed flesh. The body is connected with sin in Paul's thinking, and I know we can relate to that. And it's not just in Romans 8, but in many, many other places. But just to save some time, realize that when Paul says, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so we would no longer be slaves to sin, the expression, the body of sin, is best referred to as the old self, under the absolute domination and control of sin, conditioned and controlled. A person's body before salvation, again, is totally and utterly in the possession of the sinful nature. So you have the old man, the old self, controlling the body, and it's in perfect 
harmony. When you come to faith and you're a new person, you're still clothed in the old body, and now you've got a problem. And for the first time in your life, you realize that you have a problem, right? Now, pick back up in verse 8. Now, if we, did, if we die, if we have died with Christ, and we have, so there's going to be some continuing result here, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing, verse 9, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Let's stop right there. Now, we see this truth numerous times in the passage, and here he's just arguing from the greater to the lesser. Christ, right? Christ died, and if we've died with Christ, so the benefit then flows down to us because of what Christ has done. That's the whole idea. If we're in Christ, then there's going to be a benefit, isn't there? And there's a remarkable truth that really flows from that passage to helps explain our new identity. And number six, the death of Christ was a death to sin. That's what he says. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin. How many times? Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So to begin with, in verse 8, we have the same idea we had in verse 3 and verse 5, don't we? That is, we've died with Christ, and now we've risen in new life with Christ. This helps to explain when he says to be in Christ. That's, he begins to help us understand what that looks like. Verse 8, now if we've died with Christ, here's, here it is, we believe that we shall also live with him. It's important to point out that Paul makes sure you know that this is a certainty and it's part of our identity. We are confident, he says. That's what he means by we believe. We are confident in this. And, and the idea is that we participate in the same holy life now that our Lord lives now. That's, you have the ability by the indwelling Holy Spirit to, to be participating in the holy life you couldn't live before. Because now there's a new you inside that can do this. See? And it's not by accident that Paul uses this language with the Corinthians here at the end of the letter because he's making a clear distinction between those that are in Christ and those that are not. And I think it's important as he comes in love and in affection for the church, but also understanding that there's long-standing sinfulness here that hasn't been repented of, and he wants to make sure they understand that that is not the pattern of those that are in Christ. He's just going to be clear now. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also Live with him. We died with him. We live with him. The verse 9 explaining the same thought. See, here's why we're confident in this. Here's why we know this is a certainty. Paul says, knowing, again, common knowledge, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. In other words, the example of what we believe, verse 8, happened with Jesus, and we are in him. See, so we are certain of that happening to us forever. Then verse 9 says, he is, and by virtue of our relationship with him, we are never going to have to die again. See? Why? Get this. Because the dominion of sin was broken the first time. And how do we know the dominion of sin was broken once and forever for Christ? How do we know? Well, we're going to celebrate it on April the 17th, aren't we? What is it? The resurrection. Right, because... God raised Jesus from the dead. When he came out of the grave, he showed everyone for all time that he'd broken the dominion of, and the rule and the kingdom of sin, and death is no longer master over him. And that's number seven in our just this marvelous thing that uh, Paul put out. Jesus gained permanent immunity from the dominion of death, and the believer receives permanent deliverance from the dominion of sin because of redemption. 
That's what being in Christ has as a benefit. Sin's power, sin's sting, sin's executioner is death. And we know this is true, don't we? We all have some empirical evidence about that. Death has reigned apart from Christ in Adam. All die. And when Christ conquered death, he showed that he had indeed conquered sin, and so in Christ all will be made alive. It was an important, absolute, ultimate victory, and there will be no more added to it ever. It's complete. Now for emphasis, look at verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. There are two things here I'd like you to see as we begin to wrap up. First, he died unto sin. And so you can ask, well, what does it mean that he died to sin? We sin two. Here it says in verse 10, he died to sin. What's that mean, that he died to sin? Well, beloved, as you understand the Bible, whatever it means that he died to sin is what it means when it says that we died to sin. See? And that's a marvelous thing to think about. Whatever way he died to sin, we died to sin because we are in Christ. How can Christ's death be a death to sin and our death be a death to sin? Because whatever it means for us, it means for him. And whatever it means for him, it means for us because we're in Christ. Understand, if we are immersed with him, if we're fused with him, then they both have to mean the same thing because we died to sin in him. See? And sin no longer has mastery. And there's no more old man alive anymore. There's a new you. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Even so, now that you understand what you should know, now that this reality of the common knowledge of what being in Christ looks like, now that the foundation is laid, well, even so, he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's where doctrine gives way to reality. Consider, the Greek word, uh, from the Greek verb logizomite, the words deal with reality. In its literal sense, to number something, to count something, and it's in the imperative. Lots of people want to know, what does God want me to do? Well, he wants, first of all, for you to reckon this to be true. From a practical standpoint, on a day-to-day basis, as we battle with the flesh, we may have trouble seeing that, don't we? On a day-to-day basis, with, the, with sin's hook still in our mortal bodies, we struggle with it constantly. So Paul says, listen, realizing this is the case, reckon this to be true. The old man is dead. You're not battling an old man and your new man going head to head. The new man is there. You're struggling with sin in the flesh. But the reality of your life is that you are dead to sin and alive to God. And here it is again, in Christ Jesus. It's used in chapter 4 eight times, translated to impute or to credit to someone's account. Here it would be talking about righteousness. It takes into account the reasoning of the mind. Understand this in your mind. Your human part of you needs to begin to reckon this to be true. Because it is true. Understand it to be true. Now look back at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be what? Dead to sin. You're dead to sin. The old man who used to live there is no longer alive. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. And there it is again. Everything we do is in Christ. And all this can be acted upon because it's true of him. So it's true of us. See, Leon Morris used to say it this way. Quote, his death and all that it means had to do with sin, and his life and all that it means has to do with God, end quote. And may I add to that, since we've been fused to Christ, we mirror that exactly. And this is what, what Paul says when he speaks of his life, his conduct, his instruction to the church. It's all been in Christ, and it's not been by accident that Paul's making this distinction. We have, he said, been speaking in Christ. He's in Christ. 
and this is important, and I, you know, we don't always go to an invitation when we come to the end of a teaching time because not all the scriptures give themselves to it. And Hebrews 6 tells us that we'll move past the beginnings of our salvation, the repentance from sin and, and punishment and all that kind of stuff, and on to maturity if, if, if the Lord so wills. We do that regularly because we teach through these letters, and they have to do with maturity and growing up. But once in a while, we need to come to the point where we see this and get a reset, and this is, to, this is today's emphasis. Paul says he's in Christ. And here's a question for you. Are you? Are you in Christ? Because Paul's example is the reality of every truly born-again person. It's not some special category just for the Apostle Paul who's in Christ. Here's the question. Is your life hidden in Christ? Because if, if someone comes along, beloved, and they're living the same old relationship, like we said, to sin, under the same old tyranny of sin, with the same old lifestyle, no fruit of the Spirit, no matter what they claim, the fact is that there hasn't been a radical, demonstrable change in the reality of who they are. They've not been redeemed. And for those who are of us who are older, if you came to faith later, you, can see a, you should be able to see a significant difference in your life pattern and priority from how you were before to how you are now. A huge difference. If you grew up in your second or third generation inside the, uh, your family, you might not understand what you were saved from, but you certainly understand what it means for your life to track in a certain way. See, You'll understand what salvation means because your desire is to be pleasing to the one who bought you. And sin grieves you even when you're little. And you don't want to do that. See, So there's a pattern of growth and understanding as you mature in the faith. You begin to live more like this with a dynamic relationship with Jesus that's purchased by his blood. See, And you're in him and you're desiring to be pleasing to him. And you're able to for the first time because the new man in you now resonates with what the word of God says. And you can begin to understand what the word of God says and then begin to do what it says see, in obedience. And that's what your desire is. And you don't do it perfectly, and you're still housed in sinful flesh, and you may struggle a little bit if you're young and you grow up and you're like, the world has a lot of attractions and you're not really sure what that looks like, and a lot of potholes, and instead you desire very much to be in the Word, which is why we encourage our children, develop a habit of being daily in the Word so you're holding up the Holy Standard, you understand what the Lord wants from you, and then you begin to see that, and you begin to do it, and then you're saved from much grief. See? But for us who were born again late in life, you, you know, you understand, you should be able to see a significant change. And if there's no significant change, beloved, whatever you may imagine happened in the future never happened, okay? If sin doesn't grieve you and you don't desire to be free of it and you're con not constantly at battle with the, with the hooks that sin has in your sinful flesh, then there's no redemption. And this is the issue, see? This is why Paul makes this very simple statement. It'd be easy to just nod and just move on to the next couple of words. But I think it's important to look at it. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says, it tells us really the reality of all the redeemed. For you have died, mark this, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Is it, that, is, that, is such, that is such a joy, isn't it? I, I mean, if we had to sum up what it means to be a Christian, that certainly could be a sentence we could use. As a believer, your, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's your identity. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, again, a great, a great demonstration of what it looks like to be a believer. Christ is your life. You want to have a test and see if you're in the faith? Is Christ your life? Now, I understand you're busy and you're raising a family and you're working your job and taking care of things. Right, the Lord knows we have all those, those uh, pressures on us. When it comes right down to it, is, is Christ your life? I think that's a legitimate question to ask somebody. Is Christ... Paul just says it's, it's automatic, right? He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ, who is our life, 
is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Isn't that marvelous? Glorified body, no longer desiring to sin, redeemed by the Lord, complete. There's a little boy and his sister visiting grandparents on the farm. He was given a slingshot to play with out in the woods, and he practiced in the woods, but he could never hit the target. Getting a little discouraged, he headed back for dinner. He was walking back, and he saw Grandma's pet duck. It's not going to go well. Just out of impulse, he let the slingshot fly and hit the duck square in the head and killed it. To say that he was horrified would be a huge understatement. In a panic, he hid the dead duck in a woodpile, only to look up and see his sister watching out of the window. She'd seen it all, but she said nothing. And after lunch the next day, Grandma said, hey, um, talked to his sister and said, hey, let's wash the dishes. But his sister said, hey, Grandma, um, my brother told me he wanted to help in the kitchen. And she whispered to him, remember the duck? So he did the dishes, and later that day, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. And Grandma said, well, I'm sorry, but... I need Sally to help make supper. So the sister just smiled and said, well, that's okay because my brother told me he wanted to help. She whispered again, remember the duck? So she went fishing and he stayed to help. After several very long days of doing both his chores and his sister's, he finally couldn't stand it any longer. And he came to his grandmother and he confessed that he killed the duck. His grandmother knelt down and gave him a hug and said, honey, I know. I was standing in the window and I saw the whole thing. I was just waiting for you to come and tell me so I could tell you I forgive you. And I was wondering how long you would let your sister make a slave of you. And beloved, I would just say to you, and I don't know your past, as many of you don't know mine, whatever is in your past, whatever you've done, whatever keeps coming up in your mind, whatever that is, you need to know that God saw the whole thing. He already saw the whole thing. Witness to a guy this week who, that was his big hang-up. Too much, I've done too much. That's what I said. You know what? God saw it. And then he offered you salvation. That's a marvelous thing to think about. He's seen your whole life. So when you come to him and repent, that he loves you and that you are forgiven because of his grace. He's freed you through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus and that's where he wants to put you in Christ and you're free from the power and the penalty of sin forever. He's given you a whole new life and he was just wondering how long you were going to let the devil make a slave out of you. That's my word to you today, beloved. And I know we didn't make very much headway in our time through verse by verse through 2 Corinthians but I think that it's important to understand it can be a very big joy to understand that if you've, come to, if you've come to faith and repentance and you see the pattern of your life has changed, that you are in Christ and nothing's ever going to change that. You're hidden in Him. There's no power, no dominion over you anymore. But on the other side, if you've not come to faith, even though maybe you think you did, you look at the pattern of your life. Is Christ your joy? Is He your life? Is the pattern of your life after the word of God, hard after, learning what's pleasing to the Lord, it's your great desire, although you do it imperfectly, to be pleasing to him? Or is it the same pattern of sin, the same track of life, you live just like the world does? Don't deceive yourself. 
Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for a time to be in the Word, a time to just see some very simple truths that uh, are so amazing to us, ones that are the reality of every single believer who's ever come before and all this will come after as we wait for your son's return. To be in him is to be born again. And we thank you for that. And that's a great joy to us, even though we struggle with the flesh and we have trouble from time to time and we desire very much to be free of the difficulties and the thoughts and the, and the patterns that we've set up and the things that we do. Father, I pray, though, that... It, the reality of our life will not be camouflaged. We ask your Holy Spirit to make it clear in each heart today that if the pattern of our life is like the world and we don't really, we're not really grieved about sin, we can do things that are displeasing to you and go a long time without ever talking or thinking about it, not ever coming to you. It doesn't seem to hurt our feelings at all. It doesn't seem to change our, our thoughts at all. Then we need to be aware that it's not possible to be in Christ and the old man to be dead and that to be the pattern. And so today can be the day to come and confess and repent. First John 1 John tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, that's how you come and that's how you stay, right? You're sealed and in Christ and that's how you keep that good fellowship with him by confessing those sins and keeping a short sin list. Confess with your mouth, Romans 10, 9 says, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. Pulled from your condemnation, pulled from your slavery to sin, pulled from the field where you answered to one master, you're no longer a slave, you no longer have to do what that master said. Now you serve a new master. It's a desire to come, to lose your life, to find it. So today can be that day. If you prayed that today before you go, don't, don't leave without letting us know. You can do that just right there in, the, in front of you. Christ is your Savior today that you repented and believed. Be our joy to help you grow. Be encouraged in your walk with the Lord. And for those who already know Christ, be encouraged today. Your life is hidden in Christ. That's, the, your, that's your reality. And Father, I pray to encourage their hearts and lift them up today in that, in that wonderful truth that Paul just said so clearly as he begins to challenge the church and those who uh, remain in unrepentant lifestyles, he wants to make sure they understand there's a very significant thing that's true of every believer, and it has symptoms which are a whole new pattern and a desire to walk in holiness. And Lord, I pray that you'll seal that in our hearts today as we walk out. Thank you for the blessing of being together and the fellowship that we have for the time we spent singing praying and submission to you and giving of what we have to recognize you've given us everything. We pray all this and thank you for it. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said.